and um, spent a lot of time in India. He's a missionary there for a while. And uh, he was reflecting on how the culture in India had, had treated Jesus. In particular, he talked about uh, how he went to a, a monastery, a Hindu monastery, and, and while he was there, he noticed that um, they would study two scriptures uh, with him. They would study their scripture, and then they would also study the Gospels. And he kind of went to participate in, in this dialogue with them, communicate with them for several years. And, and he noticed that they would study the, the Hindu text and they would study the Gospels. And he noticed that you know, if you went through uh, the monastery, there was a room, a hall, where they had a picture of, of great religious leaders throughout time. And, and in that hall, there was a picture of Jesus. And on December 25th, when it was Jesus' birthday, they would, you know, offer some prayers and, and have a celebration, uh, you know, commemorating Jesus and his contribution to society as a whole. And, and as he thought about that, he reflected on the fact that these people, these, these, these monks, uh, while they were devout, they were really no closer to receiving Jesus Christ than anybody else. Because they had sort of redefined who Jesus was, and they had made Jesus... Uh, after their own image and had incorporated Jesus into their own tradition and had incorporated Jesus into uh, their agenda, if you will. And so he, he reflects that, that Jesus had become just one figure in the endless cycle of karma and samsara, the wheel of being in which we are all caught up. He writes, he had been domesticated into the Hindu worldview. That view remained unchallenged. It was only slowly through many experiences that I began to see that something of this domestication had taken place in my own Christianity, that I too had been more ready to seek a reasonable Christianity, a Christianity that could be defended on the terms of my whole intellectual formation as a 20th century Englishman, rather than something which placed my whole intellectual formation under a new and critical light. I too had been guilty of domesticating the gospel." I think if we're honest with each other, we're all guilty of domesticating the gospel, of making Jesus into our own image, of, of, of forcing Jesus to fit the way that we want to think, the way that we want to act, the way that we want to believe. I, I, I love this quote. We, we've done this uh, as across our culture. Dennis Prager, uh, in an article uh, in The Door magazine, he's a Jewish talk show host. Uh, he says this. He says, we're, we're always talking about pluralism. But we don't really mean pluralism. He says in public schools, uh, Jews don't mean Christian. Jews don't meet Christians. Christians don't meet Hindus. Everybody meets nothing. That is, as I explain to Jews all the time, why their children so easily intermarry. Jews don't marry Christians. Non-Jewish Jews marry non-Christian Christians. Jews for nothing marry Christians for nothing. They get along great because they both affirm nothing. They have everything in common, nothing, and that's not pluralism. And he's absolutely right. You know, the challenge in Second John is going to be to not stereotype Christianity, not stereotype Jesus into fitting what we want. I mean, we we abhor stereotyping when we do it about people. You know, to say all all men are this way, or, or all women are this way, or all people from this ethnic group are this way, or all people from that ethnic group are this way. We find those statements offensive, and we find those statements false. 
And yet we do it all the time with Christianity. We do it all the time with Jesus. We'll say, all religions preach this, and all religions teach that, and all religions teach this. And yet very few of them ever teach that. I remember listening to Gene Apple. He was talking about how at one point in time he brought different religious leaders together at his church. He brought a, a Muslim imam and a, and a, a Buddhist priest, and he brought a, a few other folks from different faiths, a, a Jewish rabbi. They were all there, and, and so he started asking him questions like, well, you know, how should we all live? And that part was kind of close. But then he said, well, how do, you, how do you get to heaven? And not a single one of them had the same answer. You know, who is God? Not a single one of them had the same answer. It's impossible for us to put us all together and put Jesus into the hall of our faith and society and say, well, he's the same as everybody else because he's not. Here's the thing is that we want, we live in a society in a place where we say, you know, what we really want is to just sort of love and get along with each other. But the problem is this, is that you can't have true love without truth. And that's going to be, I think, the message here of Second John. Now, let's look at verses 1 through 3 here. There's, there's no chapters in Second John, just, just verses. Uh, he writes this. He says, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth, but not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Uh, right here I want to stop and talk about who is this elect lady. Uh, scholars throughout history have kind of wondered who is this elect lady. We don't know for sure. But majority of folks today think that what John is writing to is just the church, the elect lady. The church is the bride of Christ, and so John is writing to a particular church he knows, the elect lady, and he makes this profound statement. He says, everybody that loves the truth loves you. And so John is saying, listen, everybody that loves the truth, really embraces the truth about who Jesus is and who God is, embraces the church. And so he's going to write this letter to the church, this specific church that he's writing to, and there's a timeless message for us too as well. Uh, what does he say to the church? He says, grace, mercy, and peace be, uh, will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. John is letting us know that the church is blessed by Jesus in truth and love. Those are the two things that are required to receive this blessing of God. Excuse me. John here says that we will be blessed with grace, Mercy and peace. Let's just look at each of those real quickly. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is this, this blessing that God gives us what we don't deserve. He pours out blessings on us, and he gives us his son Jesus Christ, and the text uh, of Scripture tells us that we've received the Holy Spirit, and we don't deserve any of those things. We get those simply through God's grace. The second thing we get there is mercy. Uh, mercy is where we don't get what we deserve, which is hell. Outside of Jesus Christ, our sinfulness, each and every single one of our sinfulness, my sinfulness and your sinfulness, it has warranted the punishment of hell. And yet in Jesus Christ, we have received mercy. Not only have we received grace and mercy, but we've also received peace. This is a Hebrew idea. It means wholeness. It means well-being. It means security, safety, rest, absence of hostility. Uh, if you had to put a modern-day phrase today with the Hebrew word of shalom, which is peace, I would say it's life is good. Life is good. And, and that's what God is blessing us with. He's blessing us through His grace with mercy and peace. But grace and mercy and peace, they only thrive in the church when it walks in truth and love. We don't receive grace and we don't receive the mercy and we don't receive the peace unless we are found Walking in truth and love. Notice John 3, 16. We, we know that verse by heart, many of us. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son, 
that, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We experience God's grace when we come to know him and we come to have the faith and we come to believe these statements as true. But unless we acknowledge the truth and unless we acknowledge the love of God, we're going to miss out on that blessing. So what is the truth that we've got to acknowledge? Well, the first is that we know who Jesus is and the second is that we know who we are. 1 John 1.8, John says this, he says, if we say we have no sin, in other words, if we sort of lie about it and we say, no, I'm perfect, I'm good, I've got this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's required that we acknowledge the truth about who Jesus is and we acknowledge the truth about ourselves. If we do that, the very next verse, John chapter 1 verse, uh, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, this is God's grace and mercy coming to us through truth and love. You can't have true love without truth, and you can't experience the grace of God unless you acknowledge the truth about God and the truth about who Jesus Christ is, and unless you accept the loving mercy that he has extended to you through the cross of Calvary. Unless we acknowledge the one true God as the one true God and accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have no hope. Uh, this is what it means for us to walk in truth and love. John talks about this love next in the text. He says, John, uh, 2 John uh, verse 4 through 6, he says this. He says, I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have been commanded by the Father. But now, dear lady, I ask you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we've had from the beginning. Let us love one another. This is his commandment, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard it from the beginning, you must walk in it. John says, listen, as we come to acknowledge the truth and the love about Jesus Christ, we are commanded to love each other. Now, I know that there's a lot of non-Christian people out there that love each other. Absolutely, that's true. Because we're created in the image of God, and we're created for relationship, and we're created to love each other. But I will tell you from my own personal experience that there's a lot of people who I don't have enough love for them. I run out of love for them. You know, you know these people. You've got these people in your own life. People who you run out of patience for, you run out of kindness for, you don't have enough grace for these people, you don't have enough mercy for these people. And it's at that moment that as a Christ follower, I, I can tap into that, that infinite reserve of God's love and grace and mercy, and it starts to grow my own grace and mercy and love. As we come to know more and more about the truth of God, we will naturally grow more and more in our love and our loving actions. This is what the text means when it says walking in the truth. John doesn't say you have to believe the truth. He says you've got to actually walk in it. It's been said that what we live is what we believe. Everything else is just religious talk. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 says this, that we know love by this, that he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and yet sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in truth and action. This is what Jesus has called us to, friends, to be people that love each other in truth and action, not just with words, not just with positive thoughts, but with word and deed. <coughs> I'm sorry. I did all right first service. I thought I was going to make it this one. We live in a world 
that is desperate for true life and true love. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, there's been a, a, an explosion of these signs, live, love, you know, fill in the blank. I've got a few here that I, I, I like. We've got one here. This one's live, love, teach. You know, there you go. That's it. Live, love, teach. How about this one? I like this one. This is my favorite. Live, love, eat. I'm pro that. If only that's all that there was to life, right? Live, love, pop. This is the art of popcorn. All you need to do is live and love and have a good air pop popcorn maker. That's really, that's the key to happiness in life is that. Uh, how about live, love, woof? For you dog lovers, I'm sure there's a live, love, meow, but nobody would really believe that. Um, <laughs> Uh, hula hooping. There you go. That's it. That's the secret of happiness, friends. Live, love, party.tv. I've never, I don't, I don't know what would happen if you went there, but I have a feeling it's something to do with hula hoops. Uh, we've got other things here. We've got live, love, lift. Um, that's, that's good. Uh, I think we've got live, love, dance. Yeah. Okay. That's all you need. It, you, we fill in the blank. We live in a time that calls us to do all sorts of things in the name of love and in the name of life. But here's the thing is these things are so often counterfeit. You know, I think what started a lot of these live, love, blank is, is probably Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love. People just kind of flop those things around. If you know anything about her story, uh, she talks about how, you know, she, she's married to a good guy. They, they had a new house they, were, they had worked on, and they were getting ready to have some kids. She woke up one morning about 3 in the morning and, and had this panic attack or, or just this existential crisis. And she said, you know, I just don't really want this. I want something different. I want something more. And so she said she heard a voice. She said it wasn't God's voice. It wasn't a voice from outside. It was a voice from inside my own self that said, well, go ahead and do it. And so what she do? She leaves her husband in pursuit of all these things. And she goes and she eats in Italy. And then she prays in India. And then she somehow puts all these things together and in balance. But friends, here's the thing is that's not real love. There's another word we call for that. We call it selfishness. When you turn your back on your covenant vows in pursuit of your own wants, the love that John describes and that we're called to as Christians is a love that loves like Jesus, a love that sacrifices, that lays down its life for the benefit of somebody else. The problem is that we want true love without truth, but true love requires truth, which is why John, right after he commands us to be people that walk in love, he's going to command us to be people that embrace the truth. Uh, let's read verse 7 through 11 here. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Any person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Be on your guard so that you not lose what you have worked for, but you may receive a full reward. Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, but goes beyond it, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Do not receive into the house or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching. For to welcome is to participate in the evil deeds of such a person. I want to just focus on that last phrase there. Don't, don't welcome into the house. Don't, don't do that. Uh, John is living in a time where the church's teachings are under attack. And they're under attack through traveling teachers. They claim to be Christians. They claim to follow Jesus Christ. But they're not embracing orthodox teaching. They're not embracing sound doctrine. And so John, for them, at this point in time, says, I don't want you to welcome them into the house. I don't want you to give them your blessing. Because at this point in time, what would happen is a traveling teacher would come to a community, and he would stay in your house, and you would give your blessing on that teacher, and that teacher would then go out and teach in that community. And people would ask him, well, 
we want to come visit you and hear more about this. Where do we go? And they would say, well, you go to this person's house. And, and when you said that, what was happening is you were condoning their teaching. You were acknowledging their teaching is true. And by housing that teacher in your house, you were literally giving your blessing to what they taught and, and letting validi- lending validity to it. And John says, we cannot as a church embrace somebody that does not have sound doctrine, that does not have orthodox teaching. Now, now what do we mean by sound doctrine? What do we mean by orthodox teaching? Well, we could probably come up with a list here this morning. If you've been in the church, you might have a list of your own. This is what sound doctrine means. This is what it means to have orthodox teaching. I want to look just simply at what John says here this morning. John says this, that the sound doctrine, that orthodox teaching centers on one critical truth of Christianity, and that's this, that Jesus came in the flesh, was crucified in the flesh, was buried in the flesh, was resurrected in the flesh, literally physically came back, to life from the dead, and that he is at some point in time going to be returning for us in the flesh. John says, if they cannot acknowledge this truth about Jesus, that Jesus came and that he was crucified, that he was resurrected, that he was ascended, all as a physical, honest-to-goodness human being, then you cannot embrace these people and their teaching because it is false. And friends, if true love requires truth, we've got to tell the truth about Jesus We've got to accept the truth about Jesus. Now, you not, might not believe me that true love requires truth, but let's ask this question. How many lies can you tell in a relationship before it falls apart? How many lies can you tell to a friend or to a spouse before it, it damages, maybe even fatally, your relationship with that person? If, if truth is not required for a relationship, how, how surface and how shallow can you know somebody and still have a relationship with them? You can't have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with somebody you don't know. And John is saying, listen, the thing you have to know, the thing you have to know about Jesus in order to receive this grace, this mercy, and this peace is that he came in the body, that he was crucified in the body, and that he was literally raised from the dead in the body. This is the capital G gospel. And to deny it is to deny what the Bible teaches as true. Friends, I think we live in a day and an age that's similar to John's. Folks want to deny the historical truth about Jesus, maybe because they deny truth in general, or this idea of somebody coming back from the dead is so fantastic. I mean, really, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he's the person that came back from the dead, then that makes him really the only person that's ever done that. I mean, how many people do you know that have literally come back from the dead after being dead for three days? I I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody. I've heard of people that died on an operating table, and the doctor brought them back to life, but I've never heard of anybody being brought back to life after three days in the grave. If he is the only person that's done that, then anything he says would have to have some sort of binding uh, responsibility on us. And yet we, we water this down. And we, maybe we shrug off some of these things as it's being too fantastic, but John says, listen, the power of the gospel is found in the historicity of it. The fact that Jesus came, that he was dead, that he was resurrected, and that he was taken to heaven all in his body. And yet we've, we've done our best to confuse things and make things less clear. Uh, Lee Strobel, he's got a little thing here titled, How to Make God's Clear Words Ambiguous. Uh, I like this a lot. It's pretty good. So um, I want to read this to you. So imagine a daughter and her boyfriend. They're going out for a Coke on a school night. And the father says to her, you must be home before 11. It gets to be 10.45 p.m., and the two of them are still having a great time, 
and uh, they don't want to, to end, and so suddenly they begin to have difficulty interpreting the Father's instruction. The Father's instruction is, you must be home before 11. And so they ask this question, well, what did he really mean when he said, you must be home before 11? Did he literally mean us, or was he talking about people in general, in a general sense? Like, was he saying, as a general rule, people must be home before 11? Or was he just making the observation that generally people are in their homes before 11? I mean, what did he mean? He wasn't very clear, was he? Now, what did he mean by you must be home before 11? Would a loving father be so adamant and inflexible? He probably means it as a suggestion. I know he loves me, so it isn't implicit that he wants, and so isn't it implicit that he wants me to have a good time? And if I'm having fun, then he wouldn't want me to end the evening so soon. And what did he mean by you must be home before 11? He didn't specify whose home. I mean, it could be anybody's home. Maybe he meant it figuratively. Remember the old saying, home is where the heart is? Well, my heart is right here. So doesn't he mean that I'm already home? And what did he mean when he said, you must be home before 11? I mean, did he mean that in an exact literal sense? Besides, he never specified 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. And he wasn't really clear on whether he was talking about Central Standard Time or Eastern Standard Time. In Hawaii, it's only a quarter to seven. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, it's always before 11. Whatever time it is, it's always before the next 11. So with all of these ambiguities, we can't really be sure what he meant at all. If he can't make himself more clear, we certainly can't be held responsible. Wow. And yet I think we do that all the time. God's made pretty clear what it is that we're to believe. John has said, listen, you have got to embrace the truth about Jesus Christ that he came, that he was crucified, and that he's resurrected. And we've got to hold on to this church. We've got to hold on to the truth of God's word, or as John said, we might lose everything we've worked for. Uh, John knows that those who hold to these false teachings, he says, in fact, if you go beyond these teachings, you do not have God. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Scripture. And it's a serious charge. But here, John is saying those words because he loves the church. He's saying, he, he's telling them the truth because he knows that we can only experience the grace and the mercy and the peace of God when we walk in both the truth and the love of God. John is guarding the truth about love. And the truth is so essential to love. I, I want to just, here we go. Stephen Garber, he writes about meeting the director of the Protection Project in Washington, D.C., this gal has dedicated her life to ending human trafficking, human slavery, um, and, and fighting the illegal human slave trade that still exists in the world today. Um, part of this project is they recruit the best and the brightest from all over America's universities, top universities like, like Yale and Harvard and, and Stanford. That's a West Coast school. It's kind of like UK, but the basketball program isn't as good there. And, I mean, they recruit from all over... And these, these highly intellectual students come, and they'll be part of the project. And she says, really without exception, about three, four weeks will go by, and one by one, they'll come at different times. They don't know they're doing this. One of them will come. They'll knock on my door, and they'll say, hey, can we talk for a second? They say, you know, I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity. But as we've gone through this, they'll say, I, I really am struggling with this, because who are we to tell people in Pakistan that slavery is wrong? It's wrong for us, we know that, but it, is it really wrong for them? And she says, you know, I don't have much time for this kind of thing. As they say, isn't it a bit parochial for us to think that we know what is best for other people? 
Friends, it's not love. It's foolishness. And until we come to grips with the truth and take an honest look at who we are and an honest look at who Jesus is and an honest look at the people around us, we will not act in a loving way until we embrace the truth because true love requires truth. 